I think it's always good to go back and uh, review your biosecurity protocols. You don't want to review your biosecurity protocols in an outbreak investigation. You, you want to try and be proactive and you want to try and look at things before you get to the outbreak. And so going back and reviewing those procedures, if you haven't already done a secure pork supply plan, it's probably a good time to do that. That's a good biosecurity review and allows you to upgrade those. And so just going back, reviewing all those things, making sure uh, what we think we're doing, we're doing, and uh, the weaknesses that we have in the system to make sure we're taking a look at how can we do something to improve that. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swinet Podcast and Cargill where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. Cargill supports the podcast goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and business. Let's get back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Drs. Paul Yeski and Ryan Strobel from Swine Veterinary Center and Matt Ritter from Cargill. How are you all doing today? Very good. Pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Glad to have you on, Paul. Ryan, you doing okay? Yeah, good to be with you, Laura. Thank you. Good. Glad to have you. Matt, how about you? Doing well. Wonderful. Well, I've given you all just a brief introduction, basically your names and, and who you work for, but if you would all mind just going around and giving me a little bit more background about who you are and what you're doing today, I think that would be very helpful for our audience. So let's go ahead and start with Dr. Yeski. Yes, I'm uh, a veterinarian at the Swine Vet Center here and work predominantly uh, in sow herds, do a little bit of everything, uh, certainly have a uh, interest in disease elimination and working through some of those challenges and problems. Great, thank you. Uh, Ryan, how about you? Yep, I'm also a veterinarian at Swine Vet Center. Uh, I spend uh, about half my time on sows and half my time on grow finish. And uh, most of my time would be learning from a lot of the other really good veterinarians in the clinic. So I don't have an expertise yet like Paul. I'm sure you have one. You just don't want to admit it today. Well, it's a pleasure having you on, Ryan. How about you, Matt? Would you mind giving a short introduction? Yes. Yeah, so I, I lead the technical services team for Cargill Animal Nutrition Provimi uh, for North America. And prior to that was with Elaine Quotamal Health for 12 years and tech services and R&D roles. Wonderful. Glad to have you all on today. I think this is a Perfect time of year as we're moving into the fall and certainly talking about Thanksgiving that, that we also take a moment and start talking about some of the diseases that are typically common during this type of season. And, and those would be uh, what I call our two four-letter words, PERS and PEDV. So um, from our veterinarians in Minnesota, that's generally where we start to look initially is what's happening in Minnesota as we kind of start to plan what's happening through the rest of the Midwest as we move further into the fall and into the winter. What are you all seeing up there? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you're absolutely right. We're in the time of the year where typically uh, things start to happen. And uh, particularly on the PERS front, usually we start to see that activity 
as we look back at the Morrison Swine Health Project over uh, since 2009, every year we see a spike in the outbreak, the, the incidence numbers and crossing the, um, the threshold here once we get into the late October, early November timeframe. So uh, we're kind of right into that timeframe right now. We're also into the timeframe where uh, manure pumping is finishing up and seems like there's always uh, a correlation with that happening, or at least they're the same time of the year anyway. Uh, that part's usually the case. And then the swine disease reporting system uh, also has been a real good resource to compare and contrast against the Morrison Swine Health Project. Morrison Swine Health Project is a true incidence reporting where it's reported weekly by South Farms. And the uh, swine disease reporting system that Dr. Giovanni does, uh, Trevisan does, uh, looks at all the diagnostic lab from the Midwest, all the diagnostic information from the Midwest, and what's really interesting is those two reports do tend to correlate very well together. It's two different sources of information taking us to the same place. And as we look at um, the work that Giovanni has been able to do recently is showing us that the grow finish tends to, uh, the, per, the spike in positive cases in grow finish tends to lead the South Farms about a month. And uh, his October numbers were straight up. And so, uh, that's not necessarily good news for us out there, uh, but it's the reality in the last few years that's been a, a very common thing, seeing the grow finish uh, percentage of positive herds moving up and then the south farms uh, following along behind. They also track PED as well, and uh, they use a predictive index uh, for both PERS and PED of looking back at the last three years and say, when do we uh, get into where the systems are out of control? And typically we see PED more so doing that in January, uh, sometime in January, mid to late January. And so we're, we're on the cusp of that. And generally we're seeing a little bit more there too, where it starts to move around and grow finish in December and shows up in the South Farms in that uh, mid-January timeframe. So we're certainly right in the timeframe where uh, we're at the high period of risk. And, uh, we know that there's some activity that's already started to happen and starting to see, unfortunately, uh, some producers are starting to feel some of those effects of some of the virus movement. Are we seeing still the 174 strain? Are we seeing any shifts in that? I know just a couple of months ago, or even through the summer, we continue to see 174 at a higher prevalence than what we would typically see per strains move during the summer months. And so there was that concern of what's gonna look like in the fall and winter. So is that what we're seeing or are we seeing something different? Yeah, we saw last uh, last summer, we saw the one the new 1441C variant uh, show up uh, in early summer last year on a few herds. Then we saw a small spike in the uh, November, December timeframe. If we look at the, at both, like I say, the Morrison Swine Health uh, uh, Monitoring Project and the Swine Disease Reporting System. We looked at both those databases. They both show it uh, popping up there with the first the first wave being in the summer, the second smaller wave being in October, or end of October, November, December, and then the third wave being a much larger wave as we came into that um, May, end of April, May, and into June timeframe, which is unusual. Uh, usually we don't see a spike there. We see a small spike there, not a big spike. 
And so this time we did see a bigger spike. And so that's got everyone a little bit nervous. Uh, are we gonna see a fourth, uh, a fourth wave here coming this fall? And I'd say it's a little bit early. Um, when uh, Giovanni was looking at the sequences coming out of the girl finish, uh, that's what they've been seeing is more of the 1441C variant. Um, so that one does certainly seem to be prevalent. The 174 is certainly still out there. Uh, the 184s are out there. There's still other viruses, so it isn't all 144. Um, but um, we have seen more of those cases, I would say, recently, particularly um, the geography of southern Minnesota, northern Iowa has had more of that particular strain moving uh, than other regions. So there does seem to be regional patterns uh, happening out there, but uh, uh, unfortunately, it isn't just one. Sure. Yeah, that's that's never the case, right? Right. Okay. So what should we be doing from a biosecurity standpoint, and what should we be acting on? I think it's... Um, I, I think it's always good to go back and uh, review your biosecurity protocols. Uh, you don't want to review your biosecurity protocols in an outbreak investigation. You, you want to try and be proactive and you want to try and look at things before you get to the outbreak. And so going back and reviewing those procedures, if you haven't already done a secure pork supply plan, it's probably a good time to do that. That's a good biosecurity review and allows you to upgrade those. And um, I think is a good opportunity to get into that discussion. And so just going back, reviewing all those things, making sure uh, what we think we're doing, we're doing, and uh, the weaknesses that we have in the system to make sure we're taking a look at how can we do something to improve that? And can we help ourselves along the way? And probably the um, one of the forgotten things with biosecurity uh, I think we're all really good when we talk about biosecurity. We talk about bioexclusion, keeping the viruses out, uh, but we don't don't do a very good job about talking about biocontainment. If you do have a positive herd, how do you keep it from spreading to other herds? And that's kind of our responsibility too, as producers and practitioners, is to not try and let it move around the neighborhood. And so I think looking at making sure we're uh, not only thinking of the bioexclusion. Uh, but also the biocontainment. If you do have a positive farm, we don't want to take it anywhere. Keep We want to keep it on the farm. So making sure we shower out, making sure we change coveralls and boots, making sure we handle the mortalities properly are all some of those key things to think about in biocontainment. Yeah, I'd like to Paul's point too, Laura, that's where I was going to go too, is that biocontainment piece is a big deal. Obviously, if we see that spike and grow finish first, it gets to the south farm in one way, shape or another. We always talk about air, airs and air filtration, obviously a big part of biosecurity, but still the basics of biosecurity. If that person that's doing a grow finish site uh, showers out and then does the rendering or compost in his street clothes and then go meets his friends that also do chores on barns, there's a lot of ways that we can predict that that virus will move around besides just air. I think that's a very good point. It's one we, we sometimes tend to forget is when we step outside the building, we still have the potential to to move virus. So that's, thank you for that input, both Ryan and, and Paul. Um, one of the things that we've discussed over the years, and, and certainly when we talk PED, I think it's, it's been very prevalent that we've talked about feed and the ability for PED to move on feed. And so where do you see feed in, in Swine Vet Center's view 
Where do you see feed in terms of its risk as a vector? Yeah, I think when we, if we go back to the, um, uh, when PD broke uh, originally back there in 13, 14, and we started seeing the first cases, um, you know, I don't think we really just understood how much of a potential risk there. We always thought about it and we always were concerned, but I think that really brought it home that this is something we got to take a little bit more time with. And I think some of the work that Dr. D has done looking at the various ingredients and some ingredients are higher risk than other ingredients and making sure uh, we're trying to put some sort of uh, control programs around those, some uh, mitigants even, if you will, on what can we do to, I think uh, Dr. Holkamp, when he talks about uh, risk, he always talks about, uh, you know, there has to be three failures. You have to have the organism, uh, you have to carry the organism to the site, and then you have to carry the organism to the pigs. And so, you know, certainly feed can do all those all those things. And then what are the steps we can put in place to try and prevent that from happening? And so I think as we think about those issues, um, and when I think about risk and biosecurity, I think about uh, not only how likely is the event uh, to allow the disease to come into the farm, but how frequent do we do the event? And so like uh, showering in, it's probably not a real high, high level, but we do it a lot. And when you add it up over a month, it's scary the number of events that uh, happen on a south farm. And so uh, I think some of those things are always good to just remember that it's not only the events you're doing, it's how frequent you do, how many times do you do it? How many times do you put yourself at risk? And and certainly feed, we get feed pretty regularly for the pigs. Yeah, I think most would agree, Laura, that feed is definitely a biosecurity risk. Uh, now it depends on what ingredients you're talking about or which viruses you're talking about and how realistic that is to get into your farm and trying to think through where that feed got contaminated, uh, how did it become dirty? You know, we've tried to pull out most products that would involve swine uh, in one shape or another. So there's gotta be ways that, that that feed gets contaminated and then how long does it last and how does it enter your farm? I think are the question marks that some people still have hesitation on whether it's talking about PERS or PED or different viruses out there that are, are good question marks and maybe not all the way, not all the research is done yet today for sure. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. Um, I'm going to take a step back, though, for a minute. When we talked about biosecurity, to me, it feels like we were talking a lot about PERS. Are there any different recommendation you make for somebody who's thinking about a PED risk versus a PERS risk on their farm in terms of biosecurity measures? You know, down to the basics is always important, right? You want to break every step you can, whether it's a bench, whether it's a shower, whether it's a UV box. Breakpoints of entry of any item into your farm is key for both diseases, but I would say PED is even more important that we really believe that that's probably coming in through a, a vector or a fomite. In other words, it's coming in on an object of some sort. I don't think it travels very well through particles, at least in this area of the world. I know you get into like Oklahoma or Canada where it's a lot more open and a lot more wind that there's been instances where veterinarians really, really do believe or really have proof that it probably did come through dust particles or other items. But in our area, we've seen it more so brought in in some way, shape or another to the farm. And so we really focus on those breakpoints rather than filtration and surrounding area like we do on PERS. Now, don't get me wrong, if the incidence is really high in your area and you have a lot more virus load, everything becomes more important on how you enter people and how you enter supplies. If that UPS driver is stopping at other sites, 
that obviously have PED, all those become more of a risk in the area. So it's still a lot of the same topics, but slightly different. Yeah, I think with, uh, I think Ryan's made a great point with uh, PED, we just tend to have a lot more virus. Now, some of the PERS viruses today are getting closer to the PED virus as far as numbers. And so, uh, but uh, certainly PED, we know there's a lot of virus to deal with and uh, we wanna make sure any of the uh, loadout procedures, particularly is one of the concerns that we can run into. And so uh, making sure we're doing those procedures properly is really important. Um, you know, some of the work that's been done looking at the staged loadouts, I know uh, Dr. Holkamp had a student do a project looking at uh, staged loadout and the effect of contamination backwards. And so I do think that's one of the, in the grow finish, that's one of the one ways that we do get it is back from uh, the, the coming back from the packing plant once it gets started and moving around the industry. And then once it gets into grow finish, then it tends to track around and get to the sow farms. That's why I think we see that time delay uh, when we see the outbreaks to when the sow farms are breaking. And so um, it's just trying to keep that risk down within areas, numbers down within areas. Sure, sure. Uh, Laura, I was just going to comment too on maybe feed risk differences between PED and PERS. So Dr. D published a proof of concept study in 2014 where they went to three sow farms that were had active cases of PED and they were able to identify PED in those feed bins, take the feed from those bins, challenge naive wean pigs, and create clinical infections. So that's really the proof of concept of PED and the feed as a vector. Um, then uh, Dr. D followed up in 2018, looking at survival of various viruses on feed ingredients. PED did was able to survive on soybean meal, lysine, choline, um, and vitamin D, whereas with PERS, it was only able to survive on soybean meal. Also, as we look into the literature um, out of Canada, after some of those initial breaks in 13 and 14, uh, some of those breaks were attributed to, to porcine plasma um, as a potential risk factor there. So those would be probably what I saw in the literature as some of the big differences from a feed risk standpoint of PERS versus PED. I think that's a very good point, Matt, is that we shouldn't assume all ingredients carry the same risk. Um, and, and even from my own experience and, and also from some of the work Scott D did a long time ago, as I always think about the snowball experiment, right, where we proved that we could carry virus in the wheel wells of a truck. And so, it, again, it may not be the physical feed that sometimes is the risk, but it's the feed truck itself that could be bringing that risk onto a, onto a site, right, especially as we move into winter and, you know, being up in, in this part of the woods, we tend to get a lot of snow. It's very easy to follow a, a harvesting truck full of finished pigs down the road and you know who knows what we're picking up in our wheel wells so i i think you bring up a very good point and all the viruses survive better once it gets cold that's right whether we're talking about pers or pd both of them like the cold weather and so uh, that certainly helps their survival out there in the environment uh, you know this time of the year november we hardly see the sun and so there's less uv rays from mother nature to help us reduce some of that environmental load that uh, versus July. 
And Laura, you bring up a really good point too, talking about feed trucks and market trucks going down the road. That's something that in 14, 15, we spent a lot of time looking at how feed mills are operating. Do they have a separate ingredient dump? Are they dumping on the same spot where the feed trucks are driving? And, and that's something that hasn't got brought up a lot in the last year or two, unless you have an incident. And so it's something to always be considering, or at least double checking with your feed mill, how they're handling those load end of ingredients and, and internal biosecurity on that feed mill. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's jump into that, Ryan. Let's talk a little bit more in, in depth about the feed mill and how we manage that feed risk. So do you go to the feed mills and work with the feed mill managers or do you have your nutritionists do that? Or how do you start that discussion around biosecurity in the feed mill? I, I think it's both. I think uh, that there's a lot of people that obviously understand biosecurity and the feed mill side is always, uh, uh, it's always kind of an oxymoron of biosecurity where it's such a dirty, dusty environment. But I think there's things that are very practical that can be done. Um, not, not always the cheapest, but having a separate ingredient bay or dump where no feed trucks drive over, or if they do, there's some sort of cover and process to uncovering that, not sweeping in ingredients where uh, the wheel wells went over, where are your feed truck drivers walking in the feed mill, where are they allowed to go? You know, there's basic rules that can be followed, uh, not always saying it's done on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think there's a lot of opportunity within a feed mill. You know, there's some very good ones out there that are state-of-the-art that have dust collection systems and look like they're pristine all the time. And then there's a lot that are on the other end of the spectrum that still make very good feed, but not ideal from a biosecurity standpoint. And so what recommendations would you make in terms of, of how we start to walk down this managing feed risk from, you know, from the get-go? So from ingredients all the way to the feed coming to the site. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here, Laura. So Obviously, first, we talked about some of those high-risk ingredients uh, with regards to PED. If possible, we want to try to avoid sourcing those from high-risk areas uh, such as China. If that's not possible, then we look at you know strategic hold times uh, from the born-on date to, to try to minimize risk that way. We talked about plasma um, as a potential risk from some of the literature in Canada. Today, we've got options for irradiated plasma, bovine plasma as alternatives uh, that could be used there so we can manage those risks. Uh, there's also some literature on heat treatment or pelleting uh, as an option to reduce uh, uh, virus loads. Um, Ryan mentioned some of the biosecurity measures in the mills themselves. Uh, we've got washing and disinfecting trucks. Um, and then we've also got uh, feed mitigant uh, strategies as well. But I think a lot of it starts on that sourcing, hold time, really understanding how you manage risk of ingredients coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up a key point there for me, Matt, um, particularly in the last few months or the last year, we've talked a lot about ASF, of course, always being a concern and, and its potential of coming in on an ingredient, much like what we think happened with PED. And there's been a lot of discussion about hold times associated with ingredients around ASF versus PED and PERS, right? We would obviously anticipate a hold time would need to be longer for ASF. Um, but I'm just for our listeners, I'm going to throw the cautionary tale out there to be careful. Uh, I have unfortunately seen cases in the last year where people have held products for longer than, than desired and have created vitamin deficiencies in their pigs because the vitamins were, were no longer stable in storage. So um, 
working with your nutritionist, working with your female, making sure, and your veterinarian, of course, making sure you understand how long those hold times need to occur, in my mind, is going to be critical if you start talking about hold times at the mill. That's a great point, Laura. And I think one of the other things that uh, you can work with the feed mill on, too, is uh, sequencing farms so that you start out with your cleanest farms at the cleanest part of the week and then work down the sequence uh, and then have figure out a game plan for how you're going to re-enter a truck back into the top of the pyramid, so to speak. And so doing some of that planning and work can help you can help you there, too. And um, and working with the feed mill and understanding what's possible, what's not possible, what have you got for capacities on farm? Uh, you know, every farm becomes its own little mini puzzle. I was just going to say, I think you brought up a couple of really good points, too, on uh, discussing ASF. If there is any good blessing on PED, this discussion would look a lot different if ASF would have been first rather than PED. I don't think we'd be discussing all the holding times, the feed ingredients, all the studies that have been done. There's been a lot of really good research in the last seven years or eight years due to PED that wouldn't have been done without that. So if there's any blessing due to that, that's one of them. Yes, I would agree. We certainly are. At least we know there's there's some holes that we've missed before rather than being maybe as surprised by them as what we were eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, Paul, you mentioned, it kind of popped into my head when we were talking about washing and re-entering trucks to the top of the pyramid. Paul and Ryan, you both are in, in a very cold part of the world where disinfectant doesn't always work at low temperatures. And so how do you help the feed mills manage through disinfecting, particularly in the winter, right? This is when we're the most concerned about it. This is when it's the coldest and the hardest time to really get disinfectant applied properly. Yeah, I think that's really the, the big challenge. Um, you know, ideally, if you can have a place where uh, you can have a heated area to apply that and give it the contact time is, is still the ideal um, way to do it. We know that you can use some of the Windshield washer fluid, you know, we've used that on loadout shoots. We've used that uh, for various applications for allowing us when we're in cold, uh, the cold climates to get more contact time. But it's still difficult when it's minus 20, no matter what you do. That's right. How about just manual removal of some of the snow on the wheel wells? Do you encourage that on a regular basis or? Yep, absolutely. It, it's just one more thing that you can do. Um, to try and reduce that reduce that risk, but we know we also have to have feed, and right. we, we also have to be able to get the trucks there. And it's not always practical uh, to be able to do. You just have to do the best you can and within the limits that are that are possible in the given time. That's exactly right. I mean, we don't probably expect everybody to do everything from a biosecurity perspective, but. Maybe we can offer them something they haven't thought about that works for their system or their business. And I think Ryan had a real good point on particularly the trucks hauling in ingredients, you know, and making sure that we're not getting some of that debris into the ingredients as well, because that's also a potential risk. And so, you know, I think spend a little time reviewing some of those sort of things. We spent a lot more time at that uh, a few years ago when PED first came in. And so I, it's probably probably due to review some of those things. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to discuss the outside of the truck or the cab or the feed truck, and those are definitely risk points, but that's still outside the farm. 
those ingredient trucks have the potential to touch the feed that may go right into your farm with no breakpoints. And then the world of delayed logistics that we live in today, uh, that may be faster than you thought. And so um, it um, certainly certainly bears uh, work. And I think that's where one of the places where the mitigants strategy uh, has a good place for us is it adds uh, I, biosecurity. I always think of biosecurity as a number of layers. Uh, do I want a belt and suspenders and a belt? <laughs> or how many pairs of suspenders can I wear? And so you have to decide what's practical. And then, but I think having layers always helps. And so anything we can do to layer up will help. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think we start with, with what we can control very quickly. You know, it's right there at the female. But then, yes, let's let's go ahead and let's talk about mitigants because certainly that is that next layer of protection in my mind where we we know we can't 100% of the time guarantee that everything is going to be perfect at the feed mill. And so what types of feed mitigants do you typically consider? We do see a little bit of everything out there in the industry. It depends a little bit on the mill's capability and available. And unfortunately, here in the last... Uh, like everything else in the world, the last few months, it's been difficult to get products. And so, um, but um, uh, what we try and do is come up with a strategy that can work for the feed mill and work uh, from an economic standpoint. And that's gonna be a little bit different decision, I think, for each producer. Laura, just for some of our listeners not familiar with feed mitigants, uh, Dr. Jordan Gephardt has been compiling a summary of commercially available feed mitigants. And I noticed on the K-State uh, website today that that was posted. Uh, so he's got 14 commercially available products listed in table forms with features, benefits there. And the active ingredients of these uh, feed mitigants would include formaldehyde, medium chain fatty acids, organic acids, and essential oils uh, would be in different uh, combinations thereof. But that's a lot of what we're talking about is the active ingredients used to uh, inhibit or inactivate the viruses um, that we're concerned about in feed. Yeah, that's that's very good, Matt. I think that kind of gives us that starting point of what are we even talking about in terms of mitigation? Because mitigation could be a lot of different things. Even the biosecurity is truly a mitigation step. Yeah. Um, so in my work with disinfectants over the years, I know that disinfectant studies are not easy. They certainly can be difficult to not only run, right? How long do we expose it to the feed? How long do we think the feed's going to sit in a bin before it's fed out to the pigs? You know, how do we set up these models and really measure efficacy? And again, I think it's, it's easy to, to look at active versus non-active virus, right? We put it in a group of naive pigs, and if they become sick, well, then the mitigation approach may be failed. But again, it's it's like layers. It may not be 100% effective, but maybe it reduced your risk by 50% or 60%, which is still a risk reduction to that, that producer, which might be economical. So how do you approach that whole setting up a model and evaluating the efficiency of of these mitigants. I think that's really challenging, Laura, and you bring up a lot of really good points of, you know, like we just talked about before, the logistic issues that are going on today, that feed may go right from the mill, may only have a 20 minute ride and maybe in that farm within an hour or two, you know, it could be that fast. Um, it's not ideal and I don't think that's happening every day, but there's scenarios where that, that can certainly happen. 
And then the other challenge is, you know, when is that feed getting infected like we've talked about before? Is it coming in on an ingredient and then sitting in a bin for a while? Is it getting contaminated at the feed mill? Is it getting contaminated at the bin level? Um, I think everybody can paint a picture where all three of those happen. And so there's been kind of two models that we've seen in the past uh, would be Scott D's ice block challenge method model that, that they came up with in Pipestone. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar, it was uh, not that I'm an expert on his study, but it was a simple challenge block of material with different viruses and they would drop it in the bin and let it naturally break up and go into the, the barn from there. They wouldn't uh, expose certain pens or anything. They just simply put it in the bin and then see what happened um, with different mitigants and different feed. Um, there's been other models that are probably a little more structured where it's uh, an actual titration model with an oral gavage. And so basically what I mean there is they're taking a certain amount of virus and putting it into that pig mixed with mitigant. Um, that's obviously a little more controlled, but not always realistic in the field. And so there's been several models in the past to show um, kind of examples of what you can do. Um, so there's certainly options out there. And how would you measure the efficacy? I think that's also, depending on which virus you're talking about, is really challenging. Um, PED is one, especially I think that we, as we talk about, a lot of people strongly believe that it was going through the feed, you know, from 2013 on. There's been instances where it clearly proves that it was most likely from the feed. Um, and so I think that that one is challenging to say that 100% it was from um, the feed and then got into pigs uh, without doing a little bit of natural exposure to pigs. It's easy to detect the RNA if the virus is there or not, but whether or not it's alive is the hard part. And so like, like Dr. Ritter had mentioned in Scott D's trial where he took the inside of that feed and then exposed naive pigs, he found PED there. Well, that's a little bit more, yep, I found PED, but necessarily did those pigs get infected is also the other challenging part. And so we've seen other trials uh, uh, use what's called an IHC which is basically just a stain to detect that virus in those intestines. And that's also another model to see whether those piglets are infected. Uh, really the ideal situation would be to, to expose a sow farm to that, but nobody's gonna let you do that in a realistic world. And so you gotta use nursery pigs or feeder pigs, which aren't nearly as susceptible to the virus as let's say early wean pigs or, or, or early lactation piglets. Um, and so as you use those trials, then you've gotta use other methods to see if the virus is replicating. You know, was there morbidity? Was there lower average daily gain? You probably won't see the mortality with PD at that stage of pig. And then the IHC, like we talked about, is another option because more than likely that, that RNA is going through that pig. It's just a matter of if it's uh, causing replication and infection. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge is that uh, everyone's used to looking at the PCR and having a positive negative and in this instance, that's not very helpful, whether we're talking oral fluids or fecal samples, uh, because we know the virus is gonna be there. It may or may not be alive. And so that's where I think looking at the um, intestine and seeing that there's attachment in the intestine gives us the opportunity to uh, see, uh, are we able to reduce the number? Number one, are we able to reduce the numbers? Because I think, Laura, your, your comment is a good one. Uh, we may not need to be perfect, but if we can reduce numbers, that, that always helps. And so. But uh, it does give you an opportunity to look at that, uh, or we have to look at that more at probably the intestinal level, uh, or run these trials a little bit longer and look at average daily gain or something like that. But 
the pigs tend to come back and compensate even if they've been through it if you run the trial too long. So there's a lot of challenges no matter how you how you slice it. Yeah, one of the other things too I see is when we get all these products out in the field, we'd really like to do a field study. We, we do field studies with our producers, whether it's for diet, nutrition products, or vaccines, and so forth. It's a little bit harder to maybe do this at a feed mill level because we don't always, again, understand risk, right? We don't know if it's this load of feed or that load of feed that carries the risk. And, and you know, I've, I've been in situations where PERS goes through one barn and it skips a barn down the road, but then it hits the barn two miles away. And, and so predictability with disease is obviously always a challenge. So how do you set up a field trial or an evaluation with a, a feed mitigate? Do you have any suggestions? I, I think the important thing for, our, for a lot of our producers that we work with is there's been a lot of really good trials done to date. And so I don't necessarily know that they're, ne they're looking for a field trial in their system. They're more so saying, which mitigants have worked show me that they've worked in studies that they trust and that they look at, and then they're willing to spend the money at that point due to the risk out there. Uh, we haven't set up a lot of field trials necessarily just because of the amount of risk with those viruses. Right, right. We're not knowingly going to expose pigs, but again, just like with filters, we talk about predictability of how many years between breaks. Is there you know, something of that nature we could even consider doing um, long-term in some of our mills that that might be a thought process, right? And I think certainly as uh, more, you know, we're we're fairly early and, and maybe Matt can uh, uh, talk to that a little bit more, but uh, we're fairly early into this game. And so the, the ability to do some of those epi studies, the epidemiologic studies and going back and looking at some of those over time, uh, I think it's a great idea, Laura, but uh, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I don't know if we have enough mills, right? Yeah. Um, that are using product, but can you give me some ex some field experiences that that maybe the group has had with some feed mitigants recently? I think the biggest challenge is you don't know how many times you're exposed. You know that's probably the hardest thing. It's just like the filtration model. Uh, you know how many times am I exposed in a given in a given period of time? And so that's that's a difficult factor. Is we can say. Um, you know, when, when it went in and, uh, you know, as long as I don't break, it's really successful. <laughs> and when I do break, then uh, what went wrong? And so I, I do think that's a little bit of the challenge with, uh, as we go to look at some of these epidemiologic type studies and following some of these over time, I think what we're looking for is to try and uh, reduce our risk, reduce the level, and anything we can do along those lines, I think will be helpful. And I think some of these things will happen over time. We probably just have to have a little bit. It's a relatively new technology. Yeah, I think another good story that we had in the last year, there are a couple systems, you know, given what 2020 was with the, the price of pigs and everything, they, they put it in their system in, let's say, September for uh, or September, October for our time risk period that we're going into. And then a lot of those systems said, okay, it's May, things are warming up, I'm going to pull it. We did see a spike in, in uh, PERS breaks in our area in May. But again, no idea if that was related to feed or not. And so that's the challenging part is they pulled the mitigant. Some of those systems would have broke with PERS, but would have no idea whether or not that was mitigant related. And so that's the challenging part to know. So it will be interesting to see over the next year, a lot of those systems are gonna leave it in year round to see if they'd fare any better or not. 
Well, and that brings up a good question, Ryan. You know, certainly we're dealing with high feed costs right now, and producers are trying to to keep all of their costs in line. When is it a good time to use a mitigant, and and is there a time when we should pull it? Yeah, I look at it a lot like hedging your pigs. It's all a matter of risk tolerance. There's some people that are very, very conservative and and see a small margin of profit and take it. And there's some people that are willing to take the risk. And I, I think that's what you got to ask yourself. And and the history of your farm may may go in line too. You know, um, 2020 and 2021 may have changed it a little bit as we had some south farms that hadn't broke with purrs in 20 years that all of a sudden broke last year. And they're asking what themselves, what can I do? Uh, there's some south farms that have a bad history that are saying, I'm just willing to do anything at this point. And so I think it all depends on your farm and your operation and what fits your model. And I think from uh, from the seasonality, I, I think there's very good evidence that now's the time. If you if you ever thought about doing it, uh, I think about doing it now because we're, we're in the heat of the battle for uh, both those uh, diseases. And, um, and I think Ryan's got a good point on you have to decide where you want to be, but uh, certainly I think on the South Farm side, it's much easier for people to say that's a risk. Uh, I'm going to have a mitigant in my South feed. On the nursery grow finish side, uh, we get a chance uh, when they run all in, all out by site basis, we get a chance to start over fairly easily. Uh, that start over is a lot more difficult on a South Farm. So it's going to change that uh, level of risk tolerance there for sure. Yeah, also from my perspective as a veterinarian, it's hard for me to go to my client and not advise them to use a mitigant and then have them break with PED would look really tough. And so I would strongly suggest it from a veterinary perspective to, to cover some tail ends. To add what, uh, to Dr. Yeski and Strobel's comments there uh, now being the time, in addition to this is when we seasonally see PERS and PED outbreaks, if we think about those piglets and what they're going to be worth when they go to market, those are our summer marketed pigs that are the most valuable. Um, so those are the investment that we want to protect um, if we think about it from an economic standpoint. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we certainly uh, want to do everything we can right now to, to keep those pigs on the ground. And uh, that certainly helps to justify some of those costs as well. Perfect. So as we wrap up our discussion, are there any key points that you would like our audience to know today? Yeah, I think it was a really good discussion today, Laura, and really enjoyed talking with you guys. Um, my biggest takeaways would be just uh, make sure you discuss with your, your veterinarian, your nutritionist, your feed mill, not only all the points of your biosecurity going into the winter season, where you can improve your biosecurity from all aspects, whether it's the feed mill, whether it's people coming in, whether it's the surrounding area, and then also work with the same people on your mitigant strategy whether it's right for your operation, which one makes the most sense and can be implemented in your mill, which one is cost effective, and uh, which one's gonna give you the best results at the end of the day, right? And so I think those would be my biggest takeaways. Perfect, thank you, Ryan. It is time to our famous three. Well, as we wrap up, Ryan and Paul, I, I know Matt, I've asked you these questions before, but Ryan and Paul, we, we tend to ask our guest speakers a couple of questions that are similar across all of our podcasts. And the first one we ask is, do you have a swine resource that you would recommend to our audience? Well, I, I hate to say it, I'm a little old fashioned. I kind of go back to diseases of swine. Um, that's kind of the Bible for me uh, to go back to. And uh, it's always amazing to me how much information you can garner from there. And as well as the Journal of Swine Health and Production 
uh, to have some of the more current uh, information available. And certainly there's a lot, uh, there's a myriad of uh, podcasts and uh, webinars. And, uh, you know, I think there's uh, more things than we can probably get into. Uh, but I think the important thing is to keep trying to uh, learn something new every day, try and do some critical evaluation of any of the research information you look at uh, to see if that information makes sense and uh, is it fit and is it something that fits your farm. Ryan, do you have any other recommendations? Yeah, I think there's a reason Paul's as smart as he is. He just listed every resource out there. Uh, for me, I have a lot of windshield time. And so I, I do enjoy the podcast, the At The Meeting, the Bob Morrison one, the Swinehead podcast that we're doing now. Like there's always good and unique perspectives from uh, in the field people and university uh, industry people that add a lot of value and are easy to listen to at a convenient time. So those are the ones I, I lean on. Perfect. So any non-swine related books that either of you are reading or would recommend to our audience? Unfortunately, uh, all I get to is the, the swine stuff. So uh, I'm a little bit boring there, Laura, but uh, uh, it's hard enough to get that done. That's okay. I understand. You You all are very busy people. So no worries. The, the last question we like to ask of, of you both is if you can envision someone that you've identified as successful within our industry, and success is however you choose to define it, um, what would be a characteristic or trait about them that you think has helped them become who they are? I'd say as, uh, as I go back and think about uh, our clients, um, the critical thinkers, I think, are the ones that uh, uh, that have been able to uh, look at the information, see how it fits their system, and truly evaluate, is that something that works for me? And so I think working on some of those skills over time uh, certainly can help with success. Uh, communicating with peers has been a tremendous source of information for producers. I think they always trust their peers the best, and uh, they, they're a good resource. And and setting up some peer networks, I think, has been another uh, piece that's been, helped people be uh, very successful over time. Yeah, for me, it'd be uh, the people I see that are the most successful in industry would just be their their drive, whether it's the drive to get better, work harder, work more, uh, more efficiently, uh, just constantly trying to get better in one way, shape, or another, whether it's producers or veterinarians or anybody in industry. Uh, that's what I've always seen and motivates me to get better all the time, too. Perfect. Well, I do want to thank you all today for being on our podcast. And again, for our audience, uh, this is Dr. Paul Yeski, Dr. Ryan Strobel uh, from Swine Veterinary Center, and Dr. Matt Ritter from Cargill Animal Nutrition. Thank you all for your time today, and I wish you all the best. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com. <laughs>